I always say that the beta read is kind of your chance to be embarrassed privately as opposed to publicly. Yeah, um, I like that. And again, it, there's no shame in it, right? It's just, okay, I need to go back to the drawing board, or maybe I thought I was on the right track. But in terms of these people that are my book's audience, they're my target market, it's not resonating with them. Something needs to change. What Were You Thinking, the podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love. I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and I invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to a brand new episode of What Were You Thinking?, I am fully rested from taking the month of August off and enjoying my time and my family. And oh, did anything else happen? Mm. Oh yeah, my middle grade book finally debuted. It's out there in the world, my first ever middle grade book. It's called Shift and you can find it wherever books are sold. Oh, this book is like it's the book of my heart. I hear people say that all the time and I'm always like, oh, okay, but I get it. This book has been almost six years in the making and it is finally out there and I invite you all to check it out. It is a STEM-based fiction for readers between the ages of eight and 12. My main character, his name is Dax Masters and he loves science and that's how he views the world. So please go grab yourself a copy of Shift, share it with your friends, tell your friends about it, and let all the kids in your world know that there is a book out there, a brand new book out there for them to enjoy. Anyhow, let's get on with today's episode. This week, I spoke with Heather Marshall author of this lovely, lovely book called Looking for Jane. The book is set in Toronto over the 1960s, the 1970s, and present day. The theme underlying the book is women's reproductive rights and abortion, but it's primarily a book about motherhood and the choices that women have historically had to make and continue to make in order to be mothers or making the choice to not be a mother. I am still thinking about this book almost on a daily basis. That's how much of an impact it had in my world. It's fantastically constructed. It's an engaging and fascinating story and looks into the history of women's reproductive rights and abortion in Canada specifically. I think you're really going to love this interview. Heather was amazing with all the questions I asked her. She had some great tips for the types of questions you want to ask beta readers to get really helpful and constructive feedback. And we talked about so many things. We talked about her author journey and beta readers. And of course, we talked about women's reproductive rights. So without further ado, here's Heather Marshall, author of Looking for Jane. I am super excited to talk about Looking for Jane, which is your debut novel, right? That's right. Your journey has not been typical. 
for publication, right? Yeah, I mean, going back to the beginning, if you want to kind of backtrack sure. a little bit, yeah, um, it it ended up being um, what un unusual and very fortunate after years of no luck at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always wanted to be a writer, um, and I did university, never studied English literature or creative writing, because I never really thought it was something, I don't know, I never considered it as any kind of a real vocation, right? I thought I need to get education and training in something that will get me a job to make money, and if I have time, I'll write on the side. I was still always writing just never looking at it in terms of any kind of career prospect. So sort of holding myself back in a lot of ways, which, you know, live and learn. But uh, when I was doing my history masters at U Waterloo, I was chipping away at a manuscript that had come to mind and in my spare time, kind of throwing a few hours at it here and there and on the weekends. And so it kind of yeah, as I say, I chipped away at it for a couple of years and then got fairly serious about, okay, you know what, I think I might have something here. I'm going to try to get it published in maybe, what, around 2015 or so. And, you know, went through the beta readers, polished it to the best of my ability, you know, best that I thought it could be, and query, 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 query nothing, 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 um, you know, all that sort of crushing disappointment of I'm running out of agents to query that I think might be interested in this book, what am I going to do? Um, it's a lot, a lot of rejection and a lot of stress waiting for those emails to come back and then no response at all. And the feedback I got from agents that requested the full manuscript and were willing to read, they said, you know what, we, we really like your writing. We think you've got some skill. Um, we don't think we can sell this concept in this market. So that was some of the, the best bad news I could have gotten was, you know, don't, don't give up, but this book probably isn't going to make it. So that was a tough pill to swallow. But at that time, um, this would have been around, what are we looking at now? 2018. I guess. Yeah, about 2018. Um, I was sort of accepting that defeat and casting around for a new idea for a novel. And I stumbled across a article from the National Post. I just went down some internet rabbit hole because things you find interesting, you go here, you go there, you end up somewhere. And I stumbled across this article from the National Post from 2013 about the maternity home scandal. And I thought, what? Like, I'm a feminist, I'm a student of history. How was this never in any of my textbooks? How did I never come across this? And the fact that someone like me who could have been pretty likely to stumble across that information never had made me wonder, what what are the odds that sort of the, I don't wanna say average Canadian, but someone who's not a feminist or who didn't study history, what are the odds that that person would know anything about this. So that really sparked an idea um, for the next novel. And then that combined with an idea I'd had for a novel back again, when I was writing that history masters, I did a paper on Henry Morgenthaler's provincial court battles in the years leading up to the 1988 Supreme Court decision that decriminalized abortion. And at the time, I thought, wow, this would make a great novel. I kind of did a bit of a search to see if anyone had done it before. Um, and I thought, this is just so 
dramatic and compelling and what a great idea. But that was about 2012. And again, I wasn't sort of seriously considering it. And I was still writing that other book and trying to get that to go somewhere. So this idea with the maternity homes and reproductive choice in Canada just kind of melded together in my brain and became the idea for Looking for Jane. So I started writing that in late 2018 and throughout 2019. And did the, yep, sent it to beta readers, did the whole process, because um, it's so hard when you're excited about a project to not rush it out on query. But one of the biggest mistakes you can make is, is rushing it. So went through everybody and I thought, okay, I think it's ready and sent it out on query. Um, surprisingly, did not get any bites from any Canadian agents, which I thought I might, um, got a lot of interest elsewhere. And uh, the, the agent I ended up signing with was very, very keen. Um, so I signed with her within 48 hours or something of sending the the first query. So that was um, after all the rejection I'd experienced with trying to get my first novel agented, um, to have that immediate acceptance just made my head spin. Like I, I sort of couldn't even believe it. So. Um, I always like to tell people like just just keep trying right just keep trying if i i hadn't thought maybe i'll write some other book and you know i'm a writer i write i can't not write so i'm gonna write things i'll try to get the next one published um if i hadn't sort of felt that sense of perseverance you know maybe you'll write two novels and then the third one will get agented so i always try to tell people yeah not to not to give up. So yeah, on the surface, it might look like it all sort of came together so easily and quickly. But as I say, there's that dead manuscript in the drawer that was uh, soul crushing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I was, so heartbreaking. I was going to ask about that, if anything has happened with that first book, or if it's still in your drawer. I think it's still in the drawer. It's what I'm really proud of in that book. And I was still learning a lot. Um, I think it's also a little bit too on the literary side for this market or what I'm now writing. Um, so I think it'll probably just just stay in the drawer. But uh, but yeah, it was, it's good experience. And it's it's character building stuff having that kind of rejection. And I think honestly, it probably makes you more grateful when something does finally come through for you, right? Um, yes, it's, it's maybe good for us. <laughs> yeah, looking for Jane is now it's published in 14 languages. It's been optioned for a TV series. I'm just curious more about how how did the foreign rights come up? Was it like a bunch at a time? Was it one at a time? And then how how did the option for the series come into play? Honestly, I I sort of still don't believe it some days. Like it really, it's still a pinch me thing, um, especially when I go and think back on all of that rejection. Um, just, it, yeah, as I say, it made my head spin going to total acceptance from total rejection. Um, but I had a I still have a fantastic agent at an agency that really, really focuses a lot on international rights. They have a whole international rights team. So that was all in their hands and they're incredible at what they do. So they pitched it to all these different publishers in different countries and we started getting responses. 
um, some predictable and some not quite as predictable. The company, the um, countries, pardon me, that that picked it up, but uh, that's that's all them. All those translations is their their hard work, and um, they still sort of trickle in. Like there were there were a few kind of right at the beginning. And then I think once they were able to show other publication uh, other publishers how well it had done in Canada, then there was sort of a, a flurry of a few more um, at that point. But uh, it's thrilling to see the different covers and to know that there's other writers that are translating the words. But as I say, I still don't believe it some days. Yeah. And um, with the television rights too again that was that was all my agency um they've got a dramatic rights agent there and they're they're just very very good at what they do i'm very fortunate to have the agents that i do and uh yeah it's it got a fair bit of interest from from canadian companies and it's currently just at the status where they're still peddling it to uh, networks and streaming services and trying to kind of get that that package off the ground so once things are optioned it's never never a done deal there's a a long road ahead to fruition, but it's still thrilling that that someone thought it would make a great miniseries. So yeah, yeah, yeah. TV production is like public, like publishing. Hurry up and wait. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's just all very unpredictable and a little bit bizarre, and you never sort of know what's going to fly and what won't. So you try to roll with it as best you can. But as I say, it's it's just it's great to be nominated in that sense. You know? <laughs> I love that. So okay, we've been talking about the book, but we haven't actually informed the readers what the book is about. So I'm gonna let you do that rather than have me stumble over it. So tell us what Looking for Jane is about. That's right. Yeah. So Looking for Jane is uh, about motherhood. Um, it takes place over the course of six decades and three different timelines from three different points of view. And these three women's lives sort of intersect and overlap across the decades. And it explores their experiences with bodily autonomy in all kinds of different ways. Uh, one of the women is forced to give up her baby for adoption at a government-funded maternity home in the 60s. Uh, another is seeking a back abortion in the 70s and it follows an underground abortion network throughout the 70s and into the 80s before legalization and there's a present day timeline where a woman is trying to get pregnant through IVF with her same-sex partner and she ends up intercepting a letter that was supposed to have been delivered to one of the characters in the past and she sets out to try to connect the dots there so it's um yeah i really wanted to explore kind of as much of a 360 on motherhood as i could about the lengths women will go to end a pregnancy and to become pregnant and what different families can look like and um it's it's a very it's an emotional ride i think but um the intent was that it always be very hopeful in tone I don't want to give away any spoilers, but at first glance, as you start reading the book, it's easy to think that it's about abortion, which it really isn't. Uh, it just happens to form sort of the backbone of parts of the story. So we've got Angela, Nancy, and Evelyn, right? So Angela's the one who finds the letter. Nancy's the one who's trying to find a, get an abortion back a back alley abortion in the 70s and Evelyn is the one from the 60s who eventually becomes a doctor and is very involved in the Jane network. I don't want to give away any more than that. So I'm curious as to why you decided to structure it around Angela's discovery of the letter as opposed to just say like a simple chronological examination of abortion and motherhood. 
I can't really say other than just <laughs> the the creative bug kind of gets into you in strange ways. Um, it's really funny because I'm I am such an A type and I'm such an organized planner in every other aspect of my life except my writing. People seem to expect that I've got highly complex Excel spreadsheets for my writing and I go, I have a waterlogged notebook and a word file where I'm moving stuff around. I just fly by the seat of my pants. Um, I've tried to plot and failed. It makes it a lot more difficult in the editing process, but it kind of stifles the creative flow for me. So I just sort of wing it. So in winging it, um, I had several ideas, and this always happens to me with my stories, as I end up kind of knitting together a few different ideas and threads for things that I thought would be interesting in a book. And one night I had this idea of, I think it might've happened to me. I went to my neighbor's place because there was someone that used to always get our mail because we had very similar house numbers. And I thought, oh, it was, um, it was a box of dog food that was delivered to our neighbors on the street behind us. And it made me sort of think, what if it were something kind of important and what if that neighbor wasn't home or they didn't have the you know courtesy to come let us know that they had our mail so i thought what if something really important had gone astray and been delivered to the wrong house so that was sort of this idea about this letter that had gone missing just as a concept and then what could that letter contain and so when it came up with the idea for looking for jane i thought oh there's a place where i could use that letter um and so I wrote the I wrote the prologue to Looking for Jane. It might have been the first thing that I wrote um, when I first started writing that book. I had the prologue and thought, okay, where am I going from here? And in terms of the rest of the chronology, you know, just as a reader, I always enjoy the multiple perspectives, multiple timelines. And as a writer, I find it kind of allows you, first of all, to write more than one story. You get to really write two or three stories from these different perspectives. And it allows you to give as many perspectives and sort of that, that 360 or that big sweeping view of what's happening in the story. And I really wanted to not just show a snapshot of women's reproductive history, for instance, right around the time of legalization. Mm -hmm. I wanted to really kind of show where it had come from and where it was going um, and everything in between. I wanted to really kind of draw out that that history and show how things have changed, um, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Um, there's still a lot of barriers for a lot of people when it comes to reproductive justice more broadly, not just reproductive choice. So I set out with those three points of view and it just kind of went from there. As I say, I, I didn't really have much of a plan. Um, once I decided on the twist and a couple of other reveals, it then became an absolute nightmare to edit it. <laughs> I had... Dana, I had pieces of printed out paper, like pretty much recipe cards with major plot points of things that happened. And I had them out on a giant table. I must have looked mad. And anytime my agent or my editor went, can we maybe just move this over here? I was like, oh my God. So I had to get these cards out and shift things around and go, okay, does this still work? Am I giving anything away too soon? Or like, oh my God, but that came from not having a plan. <laughs> so if you're a writer that can plot, by all means, please plot, because it will be much easier for you in the editing process. But poor me, not how I work.
Yeah, I love to hear that you have the cards because one small change can cascade through the entire book, not just forward, but it can change everything that happened before. Let me ask you about this. You you said you sent your the book to beta readers. So how did you find them? And what kind of feedback did you get? So my beta readers were just a group of um, women from my book club, um, even my mom, which I, you know, wouldn't necessarily recommend you only send it to your mom. You can also send it to your mom. Um, and people that had some sort of um, expertise. So I have a friend who's a criminal lawyer and one who's a surgeon sent it to them to do some fact checking and kind of, you know, double checking on things that were plausible or where I needed to do a bit more research and so forth. And um, women that were the target audience for my book, most importantly. Uh, my dad also read it and he was not the target audience, but he, he wanted to read it and he did give me some feedback. But you want to look at people that are the target audience. They can be people that are close to you with the asterisk that they need to give you their honest feedback and you need to be prepared to receive it. And you both need to understand that it's it's not personal you're looking at the work and that it shouldn't impact your relationship so if you're not the person who takes constructive criticism particularly well might not be the best idea to ask any friends or loved ones to read it you might want to cast your net a bit wider to people that you don't have as much of a personal relationship with but um jokingly though sending it to my mom she has a particular skill in picking out uh, temporal inconsistencies and mm. errors in books. So, um, you know, she'll say she was reading a book and just I'm making this up on the spot. But for instance, there was a kid who was 12 in the summer of 1998. And then the following Christmas, they're graduating high school. And she goes, what? And it's incredible how often things like that actually get overlooked. Um, I think it's okay if you're off on somebody's birthday by a couple of months, or right? that kind of thing. But the, the major stuff, um, she's really good at catching that. And because uh, Looking for Jane spanned six decades, and there was so much happening in a very particular order, um, she was actually really helpful with, with doing the beta read on that. But I... Um, sent it to the beta readers with a series of preliminary questions mm. for them to answer in terms of, um, you know, did anything about the structure or the style turn you off? At what point were you hooked? Um, you know, did anything seem implausible or unbelievable? Were there any scenes that you kind of found unnecessary? Um, what parts made you cry and why? What made you laugh and why? Uh, what did you connect the most to? All that kind of stuff. And then, so that was sort of things that they could have in mind while reading. And then afterward, once they had read it, when the book looked a little bit different to them, then I asked them questions related to the twist. So did you see it coming? Were there any kind of hints along the way that I shouldn't have dropped or should have dropped? Um, how did you feel about it at the end of the book? All that kind of thing. So I sent two sets of questions, but I found that really helped kind of direct their feedback. And I said, by all means, give me feedback outside of what I'm asking. Um, but if you send it to beta readers with just a general, can I have feedback, you might not really you might kind of be wasting your time and theirs. Um, it helps people to kind of have a bit of a guide for what you're looking for, um, especially if they've never done it before. 
and then it helps you get the answers that you need um, and some of maybe that brutal honesty that you need. If you've got four beta readers going, the scene was supposed to be sad and it made me laugh. And then I was confused because I realized that you wanted me to be sad. That's <laughs> important feedback to have, right? So <laughs> keeping in mind that every reader is going to have a different opinion and a different read on your book based on their, you know, preferences and their personal history, you do need to look at, are there any trends in the feedback that I need to pay attention to? Um, are people saying, you know, really wasn't into it until about the halfway point, um, but I kept going because I told you I'd read it, you know, again, very important feedback to have that might need that you really need to go back and look at those first few chapters to make sure that you're hooking readers. Um, so I always recommend beta readers. I think we we can get just too close to our own work that we can't sort of see the forest for the trees and mm -hmm. you need those fresh eyes on it, not just for typos, but for all kinds of things like that, that you might've missed omissions, things that you sort of happened in your head, but you forgot to put them in a character's mouth. Um, there can be some beats missing there that leave readers a bit confused. So absolutely beta readers are essential. Those are excellent questions to put to the beta readers. And it, it, you're absolutely right. It, it helps to have, uh, to sort of guide your beta readers in the right direction to where you want the answers. Did anything come out as like really problematic? Particularly, I think I had slipped up on a couple of the, I think I had actually for people that were really paying attention, I had given away a little bit of the twist just through a typo by accident um, and a couple of people caught that some people had feedback on like at that point i'd never experienced a pregnancy or childbirth and wasn't a mom um so my readers that were moms um i said you know what give me your feedback on this and so there were some assumptions that i'd made about pregnancy and childbirth and motherhood where they kind of went not quite. Um, I sent it to people who had had abortions and said, again, this is my take on it through other things that I've read and research I've done, but you're the one that can tell me about that experience in a much more visceral way. But yeah, there was no nothing that kind of surprised me coming out of the beta read. It's nerve wracking because it's the first time you're sending it to anyone beyond yourself where it's just been in your mind and in a file on your computer and all of a sudden it's the first chance that you're really kind of putting it out there and seeing what happens um you don't want to hear a thud um but you never know what's what's going to happen but i always say that the beta read is kind of your chance to be embarrassed privately as opposed to publicly yeah, um, like that. and again it, there's no shame in it right it's just okay i need to go back to the drawing board or maybe i thought i was on the right track but in terms of these people that are my book's audience they're my target market it's not resonating with them something needs to change um so you do need to kind of get over your own ego a bit which can be tough and you've had this story idea in mind that you become very attached to or characters you become very attached to that you find you have to kind of jettison and they hit the cutting room floor mm -hmm. um but at the end of the day as harsh as it might sound if you're writing the book to try to get it published that is then that's a business right Th those are business decisions there's a point where the creative process ends and you need to be looking at the marketing and what what is going to sell what's going to resonate with readers if you want people to read your book if you feel that you have something important to say 
you need to need to be grabbing people. So you need to grab your beta readers first. You mentioned that you were not a mother or pregnant while you were writing a book, this book, but you, by the time you hit the editing stage, you had a newborn. How, how did that impact your experience with your book now that you have a baby? Yeah, I'm honestly so grateful for it um, and how the timing lined up because I ended up, yeah, I wrote the book um, before, you know, we were even sort of trying to start a family. It was just kind of an idea. And I actually did think, you know, well, we're looking to start a family soon. I should probably write this book now because once we have a family, that's going to get a lot harder to do. Um, So there was a little bit of a time crunch there. But then I had a newborn during the final phases of the editing process. So there were a couple little bits of things that I threw in from my own experience. Um, my birth experience was drastically different than than what was in the book um, in some good ways and some bad. And so, so I peppered in little things like that um, from my own experience, but it it hit so differently once I was doing the final edit on it. And I was, I still remember just so clearly, I was sitting um, on my couch with my newborn in one arm, typing with one hand, doing some of these edits. And I was editing the goodbye room scene, holding my newborn. It, two weeks after I'd given birth or something, because I had this deadline. So I was still on that horrible postpartum cocktail of hormones mm-hmm. where you're crying at everything at the best of times. Um, so I was just holding my baby, sobbing, having this whole new appreciation for what these characters were going through. Um, and oh my God, did that just put a knife in my heart. Um and I've said to my husband and a few other people, like, I, I'm glad that I wrote it when I did, because I had no idea how much parenthood just cracks your heart open. Um, emotionally, I'm just so much more raw now than I was before having children. Not even stories about bad things happening to children, stories about bad things happening to anyone because they're someone's baby. Um, I just, I don't know, my level of compassion is just sort of, I almost can't cope with it sometimes um, now that I'm a parent and I don't know that I could have handled the research and the writing now. Um, So I'm glad that I wrote it when I did. Obviously it in some ways meant that I needed to do more research to make sure that I was getting things accurate. Um, But it also gave me that emotional distance to be able to do it because to, to write something so emotional, which all of my books are pretty emotional. I I don't really write light things. There's light moments, um, but I don't really write light things. It's just not my, not my jam. Um, but to do that, you have to dive into some really cold water first and hope that your readers will follow. So, um, glad that I jumped into that cold water when I did, but, um, here we are. Yeah. The book is set in Toronto. Um, and any, any author, any Canadian author, we all have this thought for a moment that somewhere down the line, an American publisher is going to say, Hmm no, can you switch this to Chicago? Or like, I have a book set in Calgary. And my fear was that they were going to say, no, 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 you need to set it in Montana. Did you have that concern? 
I had that concern. Um, my agent is actually from the UK and, you know, said this is a fantastic Canadian story, didn't want me to reset it elsewhere. I did very briefly consider early on setting it in Chicago, purely for marketing reasons. And I did some soul searching and decided that there were a number of reasons why I really wanted it to be Toronto. I wanted to kind of capture Toronto in that era. And the story of the Canadian experience is in and of itself worth telling. Um, so I know that, again, from a publicity and marketing perspective, from a sales perspective, perhaps that has an impact, but it's an impact I was willing to to take because um, it was important to me that it be a Canadian story. And my gosh, um, the resonance with with Canadians and people saying, it's so refreshing to read a book where I, I recognize these landmarks in Toronto and there's Canadian references and, you know, things are in Celsius, like that's thrilling. Um, and it just seems so obvious that there's an appetite for that. Um, but I know a lot of authors get pressured to, to set things elsewhere. And when it got picked up by our US publisher, by Atria, um, I did ask that at the outset and they said, absolutely not. <laughs> like, again, this is a unique story in and of itself and changing the location changes so much about the tone and the feel and you know everything with the novel so i was very glad that i yeah never got any pressure to to change the setting and if you had what would you have done oh i mean yeah probably chicago because it was inspired by the jane collective that was out of chicago um if you've read the author's note i, I kind of explained that the networks in canada just were not as organized or well known um didn't have a nickname but, uh, you know, I love Chicago. I love the city. I would know the landmarks. Um, but again, it just wasn't, didn't feel right for this book. That that just wasn't what I was going to write. Where were you when the idea for the book came to you? I always love this question. In the bath. Oh, really? My best ideas come to me in the bath. And I, oh my gosh, I was told recently that I'm in good company and now I can't recall what author it is and I don't want to unfairly attribute it I'll see if I can get back to you on that Dana but there are a couple of authors that have said the the bathtub it's just where all the ideas come and um the idea for Jane and I remember the moment very clearly because it it was like an electric shock almost in your brain you know those moments where something clicks and you gasp right it's <laughs> I've had this idea and uh that was when it clicked for me that the history of abortion access and the maternity homes were actually the same story because it was all about women's fight for agency over their bodies and over their lives. Um, they were actually these these two threads and I figured out how I could connect them. And I screamed for my husband. He was in the other room watching hockey. And I was like, I need my notebook. So he brought my notebook in and I still have it. This, yeah, waterlogged notebook. Nice. Um, all the pages are all bent and everything with like the initial scribblings. And I was there until the water got cold, just writing things out. Um, and that was, yeah, like November of 2018 or something. And just boom, started writing. Um, so it's pretty exciting. Sometimes you have to kind of chisel the ideas out of rock. Um which is a lot harder. It's nice when they just come to you like that in an epiphany. Did you know it was going to, did you know it was going to be <clears throat> all these, these different timelines at that point? Or was it just like, yes. Oh, wow. Yes. I knew the title and I knew the <gasps> last scene. 
um and it's strange it's very strange so i wrote the yeah the prologue and then the final chapter were the first things that i wrote and at one point there was some discussion about changing the final chapter and i said i i cannot i i i can't and i'm glad we didn't um but yeah i thought it's here's how this is going to connect with the jane network there's going to be this baby jane that someone's looking for and the well, I guess I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but I knew the the final line of the book and the title is going to be Looking for Jane, because um, it's in some way all three of the characters are looking for Jane. Who Jane is changes a little bit. Um, and again, the title, there was never any suggestion that it be anything else, which is nice, because a lot of the times, you know, again, marketing and publicity kind of kick in and they go, well, what kind of titles are more likely to sell as opposed to you know, what the author would ideally like, all those decisions kind of get made as the book is coming to to publication. So I was I was glad that I was able to retain that original title. What were you feeling when you finished that first draft? Yeah, I went and printed it off at Staples and you see it, you know, <laughs> I, I coming the same off thing. hot. Yeah, because I need that like big package printed off and then I just literally take a red pen to it. And that was what I was I was cutting up sections of it and rearranging them um, costs like 10 or 15 bucks to get it all printed off and coiled. But um, yeah, very exciting. And I mean, you oh, you never know, but I, I do have to admit I had some inkling that I might have something. Um, and I think it was just the the fact that no one had really written about that before, which surprised me. Um, and the themes are just, you know, I, I thought fairly universal themes um, that people could relate to. Obviously, I had no idea that the reception was going to end up being what it was. Um, but I, I thought I might have had a better shot at it than I had with my first manuscript. It, it felt different. Yeah. What was the reception to the book? Uh, uh, my, the humble part of me has trouble talking about it sometimes. Um, but I mean, it was an instant number one bestseller. Um, I had a fantastic team behind me at Simon & Schuster that did, you know, so much pre-publication buzz. Um, it got picked up very early on by the team at Indigo for one of the staff picks. Um, Costco for the, the book of the month. Um, there was, you know, a lot of support on board leading up to it, which led to a lot of pre-sales. Um, which is how you end up with an instant bestseller is is those pre-sales. Um, so there was clearly a, kind of a, a groundswell of support and excitement around the book. Um, I was still mothering a baby at that point. So there, in some ways, it did really help to keep me grounded um, because, you know, I'd be I'd be getting emails or hearing updates on the bestseller list. And like, I think when I found out it was an instant number one. I was in the bathroom, like washing my muddy dog who had just rolled around in the dirt outside. And I had a crying baby and oatmeal in my hair. And I was kind of emailing back going, that's great. I'll, you know, respond to you when I can. I'm a little busy. Um, so as I say it, I think that that helped keep my feet on the ground a little bit in those first few months where it was clear that, you know, it was really, really resonating. Um, it was on the, oh my gosh, I think it was at number one for five consecutive weeks and then spent many more um, on the bestseller list and hopped on and off over the course of a year. Um, I think it was 
like 20, 26 or 27 weeks total, which was just, again, beyond my wildest dreams. Um, you know, you sort of hope maybe at some point if it pops up on the bestseller list, that would be amazing, you know, the cherry on my career and to have it do that. Like I, as I say, I still am in disbelief over it and that's not um, false modesty. It's just, as I say, it's one of the, it's one of those things where if you've had a lot of rejection or if you've had some hard knocks in life, when something happens easily and smoothly, it sometimes feels a bit weird. And it had always been my dream to be a published author. So to have that come to fruition and to no longer be a dream, but a dream come true, um, I'm, I'm still adjusting to it. It's um, I'm so grateful to the, the teams behind it and to the readers for their support. But I think the book was you know, I'd written something and people were then talking about something and these issues that had previously really only been whispered about. And I think that it kind of made some space for those conversations to happen uh, more openly. So I think it, you know, I thought there was a gap in the market for it. Um, obviously, my agent and my publishers did too. Um, but it seems that people were were keen for that story and didn't know that history and, and wanted to know more. Um, so yeah, the, re the reception overwhelming is just the only word I have for it, I suppose, but um, grateful every day for, for what the book's done and the legs that it proved to have. And here we are again, 2023, and women's reproductive rights are being attacked again. And, you know, again. yeah, again. And yeah, I was reading when I was reading Looking for Jane, I thought, how how did we go so far backwards? And how are we at such risk of going back to those, you know, backroom abortions and and it being illegal in so many states? Like I would love your take on that if you if you not want to get political or vocal about it, I'll respect that. But I feel that. I'm guessing that since you wrote this book, you do have an opinion on it. <laughs> yeah, don't shy away from politics, that's for sure. Um, I mean, I had no idea when the idea came to me in 2018 that it was going to be so timely in 2022. Um, you know, the, the attacks on women's reproductive rights and women's rights generally just on women is constant. Um, but it flares every once in a while. And, you know, this, I can't even call it a debate or a controversy, because to me, it's not, it's fundamental health care. Um, but I'll, I'll call it controversy for the sake of argument. Um, but this controversy, you know, was always simmering in the States, but hadn't boiled over the way it did in 2022. Um, so as I say, I, I couldn't have predicted that. I, I wish it hadn't been the case that it ended up being so timely. It was supposed to be historical fiction, not contemporary fiction, um, or file it under educational. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that the message gets out. It's it's done well in the States. Um, not surprisingly, didn't get picked up for any of the sort of national book club picks or anything like that. Again, I think, and my publishers did not expect that. They expected there to be a little bit of distance on it. Um, but it's been a great sort of under the radar book club hit. <laughs> um, a lot of support from American readers on social media. I 
had kind of braced for some blowback and to get some terrible messages from people and knock wood, it has not happened. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why is that the people who know what the book's about and are inclined to read it will read it and they're supportive. Um, I don't think the people that would object to it really know that it even exists because it didn't sort of blow up in the US the way it did here. Mm -hmm. um, but even in Canada, I didn't get any kind of blowback. And as I say, I had prepared for it. It's one of the reasons I'm a little bit vague about, you know, my family and where I live and all that kind of thing, just for some personal safety. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's it sounds, you know, um, it's the word I'm looking for. Oh, I'm assuming you're going to edit this later. Um, I don't want to say self-aggrandizing or self-complimentary, but, you know, it's, I hope a lot of people read it, even if they're not buying it, please get it out of your library, download the ebook, um, because the messages are just more pertinent than ever. And I think it's kind of a call to arms. It's a reminder of what could be at stake. Um, and for Canadian readers, I always say, just don't get complacent. You know, we've always got this chip on our shoulder that we're always going to be more progressive than the states that, you know, we're, we have a better sense of humanity and compassion and all these things. And I just don't believe that that's true without effort. So you need to defend these rights. Um, I think we owe it to these women, these very real women that are depicted in a fictional way in the book. These were, these were everyday heroes. These were women who risked everything to help other women access safe abortion, safe medical care. They, they weren't superheroes. They were, they were women with day jobs who did this on evenings and weekends. They were risking their family life, their livelihood. They could have gotten fired from these jobs. Their husbands could have divorced them had they found out about this and weren't supportive. They could have gone to prison. <laughs> like, and so the, what they risked, I just think that's kind of the message I wanted to get across. And I wanted to put a very human face on who those women were, and we owe it to them to defend this. So because of the structures in place in Canada, our, our government um, and our legal structures, the way our healthcare is administered, um, it's very different from the states. And I think it would be much, much harder to dismantle um, access to abortion in Canada. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to be on the watch for it. So, you know, um, rights are scaled back in inches, not miles, mm -hmm. kilometers. <laughs> um, so you need to watch out for those inches. Um, and when they're starting to recede, you need to push back before they recede too far. So I always yeah, urge readers to, to be on the lookout. Don't be paranoid, but be on the lookout. Beautifully put and well explained. And you're absolutely 100% right. And I just want to say, I want to wrap this up by saying, Looking for Jane, it's a beautiful book. And each of those women, Angela, Evelyn, and Nancy, stay with me. And it's one of those books that sits on the shelf and I think, you know, I'll reread it again. It was Ah, oh, what a debut novel. Congratulations on that. It was so, so good. Thank you, so, Dana. Yeah. Thank so you. if if anyone's looking for a book that will make you think and touch your heart, you need to go read Looking for Jane. So thank you so much for your time today, Heather. I totally appreciate it. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of What Were You Thinking? You can pick up your copy of Looking for Jane wherever books are sold. And you can check out Heather's website at 
heathermarshallauthor.com. I'd also like to invite you to keep tabs on what's happening with me and shift release and other news by subscribing to my newsletter at substack.com slash Dana Goldstein. Once again, thanks for giving me your ears. I have one more question. Why does yeah. your why does your dog have a cone? Oh, I see, see the dog rolling around in the back. She just like, rolled over on the couch. I know yeah. she's she's been rolling around the whole time, and I'm just like, oh, this lovely girl. She's just sprawled on the couch. I think she's probably angling for a belly rub when I'm done here. Um, so she she has very very thick fur on her tail. She's a golden retriever, and she's just a big fuzz bucket. And we were playing in the hose, and her tail got a bit too wet, and she gets hot spots so quickly, mm-hmm. and then she was going for the hot spot so she's in the cone hopefully for only a couple more days the cone of shame but honestly she goes in and out of it like a dream she never fights it she gets treats she's such a good pup about it but uh i know doesn't look the most dignified does it yeah it's just I, it was just so funny like to, yeah. to see the the cone and the tail and the legs going around <laughs> oh bless their hearts they bring us such joy don't they they do 